You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. My guest today is Congressman Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison is a congressman from Minnesota, but importantly right now, he is the frontrunner candidate to be the next chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Ellison is a guy with a very fascinating background. He's the first uh, Muslim elected to the U.S. Congress. He is a progressive populist kind of guy. He's an African-American. He's managed to merge a lot of the party's different wings together. He was one of Bernie Sanders's first and most prominent endorsers from Congress. So he also, in addition to having Chuck Schumer's endorsement to run the DNC, he has Bernie Sanders's endorsement. So he's got this capacity to bring together wings of the party that currently are at war. I want to do a bit of a different interview that I've heard with Ellison recently. Um, There's some great discussions with him out there. And if you're interested in his biography, which is interesting, I recommend Glenn Thrush at Off Message had a great discussion with him, goes into both the good of his biography and also the places where he gets attacked. He was a supporter of Louis Farrakhan during a period when he was younger. He gives a fascinating explanation of that. But I didn't want to go back over that ground. Having heard a bunch of discussions with him, I wanted to go really deep into the mechanics of what he wants to do as Democratic National Committee chair, what he thinks the powers of that office are. And the reason I wanted to do that is that the race that he is in, uh, the other main candidate is Tom Perez, the, the labor secretary, who I have a past interview on this show with, if you want to scroll back and find that. But the race he's in is being really absorbed right now as an ideological contest, a contest really between the sort of Sanders wing of the party and the maybe Clinton Obama wings, which are thought to be a little bit more behind Perez. But that's not really what the DNC chair does. The DNC chair does not set the ideological direction of the Democratic Party. The DNC chair controls money, controls mechanics, helps deal with organizing, helps build and create and set the tone and priorities for party infrastructure. And so I really wanted to figure out what Ellison's vision was on that. And we get into that. We, we talk a lot about voter turnout, which he is very passionate about. He's a very interesting way that he runs his own elections and his own campaigns that, that he goes into some detail on here. A point he makes, which I think is fascinating, is that he feels that the Democratic National Committee has become the Democratic Presidential Committee. And it has really forgotten the down-ballot Democratic infrastructure leading, at least in part, to the devastation Democrats have faced in cities and states over the past eight years. And that's a big part of his vision of politics right now and what he would do in that position. We do talk about the ideas he thinks should define the party. We talk a bit about the, the people he reads he doesn't agree with. We cover a fair amount of ground. And I think we get specific in a useful way for anyone thinking about what Democrats might look like and what they might focus on in this dawning post-Obama period. As always, a couple quick pieces of business. Please rate the show on iTunes, subscribe, share it with your friends, put it on the Facebook, Twitter, email, whatever you want. I'm always grateful. It is how we grow. Please give me feedback at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Always fascinated to hear who you want on. And then finally, please check out my other show, The Weeds, where I talk deep in the weeds of policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Uh, there's a lot to talk about right now. So I think if you are enjoying this episode, you're going to enjoy that as well. All that said, here's Congressman Keith Ellison. Congressman Keith Ellison, thank you for being on the show. 
Glad to be with you. I found out something I didn't know about you. You're a podcaster. I am a podcaster. I'm on We The Podcast. You can get it on iTunes. And we have many episodes, but the focal point of the podcast is how the people outside of the millionaire and billionaire class experience the economy. We've done stuff on the diaper need. We've we've done what stuff is it, on, What is the diaper need? Hold on there. WIC, women, infants, and children, and regular welfare programs tend not to cover diapers. So a small family that uh, has infant children who's uh, facing some tough times and needs some extra help, they can get food, and they might be able to get health care and housing assistance, but diapers, which can be very expensive, are not included in that benefit. So, you know, as a result, you know, you have babies in diapers longer than they should be. You have rashes. You have illness. You have kids staying home. You have parents having to take off work. And uh, so as a result, you know, there have been folks who have pulled together diaper banks, but, of course, diaper banks uh, are good people trying to do good, but they can't meet the, the overall need. And this is not just folks who stay at home all the time. These are working parents, some of whom are in school, but, you know, they're the working poor, right? They're making 8 bucks an hour. They're making 10 bucks an hour. And on top of that, you know, they got to afford diapers, which are pretty expensive. Middle-class people pay less for diapers because they can buy them in greater bulk. Yeah, that's actually one of the fascinating realizations I think you have when you start to study poverty, that it's very expensive to be poor. The <laughs> loans you get cost more. The food you buy costs more, at least for the same item. Just there are a lot of ways if you have time and you have resources and you have market power, that you're just able to get better deals in the economy. And if you're poor and you have a lot of money, you get you get screwed on that level. So true. And and so we, the podcast, explores that. You know, we, we went into how housing prices in Milwaukee in the worst part of town are not appreciably lower than in other parts of town where housing quality is way better. One episode, we talked to the author of the book Evicted to talk about, you know, just the, the high cost of rent nowadays, particularly in urban centers, but also in rural areas. You know, we talked about manufactured housing, you know, what some folks talk call um, trailers, and talked about this really promising new development where some folks are buying the property that they live on so that they can control it. You know, in most uh, trailer parks, some, uh, you might own the trailer, but you don't own the land you live on, so that can be pretty expensive and can be pretty low quality, and people can get trapped. So we, we go into all that stuff. We all go into the voting gap, how, you know, leave aside who donates money, leave aside all that, just upper-income people voted higher percentages than lower-income people. And that is part of the reason why the electorate is a little more conservative than the population. So I want to hold there for a minute because I, so I listen to a bunch of these episodes, and, and I want to say you have great music choices on your podcast. Was, oh, yeah. One of my favorite parts is it's strong music, possibly some copyright violations, but very good music. <laughs> but... It's a recurrent theme, this idea of the voting gap. And you had, you had a podcast, and I'm, I'm sorry because I'm blanking on the guy's name. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota. I think he was the Cowell Chair in Public Policy. But you had a fascinating discussion with him that, that he has done this research showing that you might think that folks who are dependent on programs like TANF, which, which people think of as welfare, would vote in higher numbers because they're, they're in more need. But in fact, what he finds is that the way the government treats you if you feel like the object of the government, if you are... Uh, oh, you're talking about Jill Soss. Yeah, I, I, think, the, I yeah. think that's what it is, yeah. Yeah. The way the government treats you, if you are if you are acted upon by the government through stop and frisk, through programs that humiliate you with drug testing and other things, endless forms, they are actually more likely to withdraw from this system. And so an right. actually important part of creating participation, particularly among poor Americans who do rely on government services, is for those interactions with the government to be respectful in a way that they often are not currently. And I'm curious what you took away from that around program design and around whether the, particularly the Democratic Party, which you're seeking in a, in a way to lead its at least national apparatus, is thinking hard enough about what that moment of interaction between the people the government serves and the people who in theory control it looks like and feels like. Oh, absolutely. Well, well there's a lot of stuff that goes directly to voting. And we can talk about that. But then there's other stuff. I mean, if you talk about all Americans of all economic strata benefit from 
some kind of a government program. But because so much of the benefit people receive is through the tax system, it means that first the people who take advantage of it have to have the income to justify the tax cut that they're looking to get. And then people have a tendency to associate tax cuts and deductions not with the government helping them, if you understand what I mean. And so, right. So, if you get the mortgage interest deduction, that physical right. money that that's yours, you got it back, not like a government program helping you out. That's exactly right. Even if you look at the EITC, you know, a lot of people one don't take advantage of it, but even the, for the folks who do, you know, there's just sort of this idea that the government's not helping you; they're just giving you back your own money. Well, the truth is that uh, based on the tax code, that's actually the government's money that we're allowing you to keep, and just the level of, I'll use the word appreciation for that, is just not there. So people don't think the government does much for them, although the government does a whole lot for them. And the result is, is that uh, anti-government rhetoric can come out of the same person who is the beneficiary of tremendous government largesse. And that's part of you know, what I think the Democratic Party has to do is to really help people understand how much the government really does help them. And I think we could do a whole lot more in terms of public education on that score. I want to talk a little bit about something that's downstream now from voter turnout. So we're we're talking a night after President Obama gave his farewell address. Right. And at last I looked at Obama's polling, which was a day or two ago, he's at 56 percent. He is leaving office a very popular president. He sure um, is. He's more popular than Ronald Reagan was when he left office. <laughs> yep. but, but at the same time, over the past eight years... Democrats' share of seats in the U.S. Senate has fallen from 59 to 48. They've right. lost 62 House seats, 12 governorships. And this is the number that I, I keep getting caught up on, 958 seats in state legislatures. Right. Why do you think that right. is? Very candidly, I think that the reason that those uh, we've had those losses is because the DNC is viewed more as a uh, presidential campaign apparatus rather than a program or an agency designed to get Democrats elected up and down the ballot all the time. The DNC really should be the instrument for the rank-and-file Democrat all over the country, in Idaho, in Chicago, in Minneapolis, in Florida, the rank-and-file Democrat all the time. But we treat it like it's not the National Democratic National Committee. We treat it like it's the Democratic Presidential National Committee. And so because of that, we have not really had the outreach and the door knocking and the engagement year-round that we need to have. And that's too bad. And the thing is, is that before 2008, we had the 50-state strategy that is, in fact, still pretty popular among DNC members. And as you notice, we did pretty well in 2006. We did pretty well in 2008. And I think that's because we still had enough connectivity in place from that 50-state strategy. But as time wore on, the tremendous popularity of Barack Obama, his amazing rhetorical skills, his just unparalleled ability to explain things and to inspire people really is the fuel that we lived on. And because of that, we lost a lot. And at the same time, you know, Republicans made some strategic decisions. I mean, in 2010, I mean, there, there are articles in 2000 and before 2010 where Karl Rove is saying, we've got this new thing called Maptitude or this new software that's helping us identify places of opportunity. And we're going to be going into the small towns. We're going to Erie, Pennsylvania. We're going to Peoria, Illinois. And we're going to get competitive at the very local level. Also, there was massive investments by the Koch brothers. So, as we were kind of focusing on our champion, our great champion, President Obama, the other side was actually thinking creatively about how they can really dominate on the state level and on the local level. Those two things together gave us some unprecedented losses. But I'm going to tell you, though, Ezra, we can come back. We absolutely can. We just have to refocus our, our game plan. But if we do, 2018 and 2020 can be years of great promise. So I'd like to hear about that. And I'd like to be very specific and operational mechanical, because I think 
something that gets lost when we talk about the, the DNC chair race. So you're running for DNC chair. Yes, and I am. It is being understood and covered as an ideological contest. And I think this is fair to say that in some... That's sort of, too bad, though. Yeah. In some ways, I agree because it's an operational position. So that's what I wanted to talk about. Operationally, how do you do that? What are the, the levers you have as DNC chair to pull? What are the mechanisms that you think would work here? What, what like literal policies would you change from how the DNC works now that would make it less of the Democratic Presidential Committee and more the Democratic National Committee? Well, first thing is if, if, is if I win right away, we're going to start with an attitudinal change around guaranteed turnout. Voter turnout has got to be something that is on the mind of every rank-and-file Democrat, every Democratic office holder. We must think in terms of turnout. We must think in terms of expanding the electorate beyond the people who are the likely voters in the swing states. So turnout has got to be key. You know, and, and when, when I was elected in 2006, my district had the lowest turnout in the state of Minnesota. Now it's the highest, and it's consistently the highest. And one of the reasons why is because we focus on the 365 days a year in the off year, the all year, all year. When you say you focus on it, what do you specifically do? Well, we have an apartment program. We found out that if you go, if you knock on a door one day and you come back in a year, there's a 50-50 chance that person doesn't even live there anymore. So if you, if you don't go there except for election time, there's an even greater chance, 50% chance of 50% chance after two years. So we decided that we were going to have an apartment program. So there are hundreds of apartment buildings in the 5th Congressional District. I got staff that identified all of them that have more than around, you know, five or six units. And then we made contact with the managers of all of them. We got captains in them. And then in the off year, we knocked them. We had meetings there. And then when some people don't want to be bothered, that's why they live in an apartment. And so the management would be able to tell them the politicians are going to be knocking today. So if you don't want them to knock, put up a sign on your door. And we would just do that. And we would. And so that's one thing we would do. We have actually an apartment campaign manager with a specific title and set of duties. The other thing we did is that in 2015, and we do this every off year, a massive summer knock. And we knock all year round, but we have a special massive summer knock where we get a whole bunch of college students and pair them with our paid staff. And so last summer, in 2015, we had 9,000 conversations. took us about 30,000 tries to get those 9,000 conversations. But in 2015, we collected data. We cleaned up our list. We got back in touch with people, and we sent them an important signal, which is that we don't just care about you when we want something, your vote. We care about you and want to have an ongoing, durable relationship with you. And well, that kind of thing, people remember. And then, of course, we would do a lot of things in between. Regular pizza parties, coffee clatches. I have the biggest Labor Day picnic in Minnesota. We have a get-out-the-vote concert with our rap community right before the election. But the real idea is not the big events. The real idea is the canvassing, the door knocking, the calling. And then the other thing we do is we continually ask people to help us cover. So we're asking people. There's a vote coming up. What do you think? There's a vote coming up. What's your opinion? Sign up on this petition. Sign up on that petition. And so people are constantly feeling like they're partnering with me as, as the member of Congress from their district. So that's why not only do I win with a high percentage. In fact, my predecessor won with a high percentage. But I don't even care about the percentage. I care about the raw numbers that we are turning out. So when I got in office, I had 150,000 votes. Now... If we don't get 250,000 votes, we feel disappointed. And because we get 250,000, and, you know, this year, and we got 262,000 in 2012, you know, we're able to do things like this. So, for example, there are no statewide Republicans in Minnesota, not any, not one. Amy Klobuchar, Al Franken, Democrats, Mark Dayton, our governor, Democrat, Attorney General Lori Swanson, Democrat. We don't have no statewide Republicans. But, Ezra, we used to. Y'all remember Tim Pawlenty, which used to be the governor, and you remember Norm Coleman. Why can't a Norm Coleman or a Tim Pawlenty hope to get back into statewide office? Because in the 5th Congressional District, we spike the vote so high, they cannot get in. And I'll give you another example of, of what I'm talking about here. I got a good friend of mine in 
I'd even recommend you uh, interview him one day. He's an awesome guy. His name is Steve Simon. He's the Secretary of State for the state of Minnesota. And when he ran in 2014, he was the only incumbent. And the Republicans put a lot of energy into that because they figured, well, if they can beat, if they, that would be their chance to win a statewide office. So they actually did beat Steve in five of eight congressional districts. But we beat them so bad in the fifth congressional district that we still won. And so that's sort of the kind of thing that, that we do, you know. So, and, and like in 2014, voter turnout statewide decreased in the state of Minnesota from 2010, uh, hitting a 70 year low. But in my district, we increased turnout by 3% in 2014. So we're going up. Even in down years, we're going up. It was the only congressional district in Minnesota, the fifth district, where voter turnout grew between 2020 and 2014. So, that's what we're doing, and that's why I think I need to be the DNC chair because— Let me hold you there for one second because I want to—before we move to that, I, I want to note one—so those are very impressive numbers, and particularly the point about 2014 turnout increasing in your district. Uh, that, that's an achievement. Congratulations. But the thing that is very different here that I'm curious how you're thinking about it— you keep saying the word we, and I, I recognize that you mean your campaign staff, all your volunteers, the college kids— but one thing that is true in your congressional district is that what is being organized around is you. And in American politics in general, one reason presidential years have so much higher turnout than, than midterm years, to say nothing of normal organizing in just day-to-day non-election periods, is that people find it easier to connect with the character of the presidential candidate. And I don't mean the character in terms of good or bad. I mean like the character in a novel. So – Right. So when you're when you're working on behalf of an yeah. institution, and particularly neither political party in the country is actually a popular institution. People don't like Republicans. They don't like Democrats. Right now, we have the highest share of independents as a, as a share of the electorate that we've basically ever had. How do you create that connection? How do you give people something they connect to when it's not Keith Ellison, this nice guy who maybe knocked on your door a couple of years back, but it's the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party is this big faceless thing and you're not even always sure you like it and you know you don't like politics in general. So how do you make that movement so people feel like they have a relationship with something they want to have a relationship with? Well, we give them the, the, we give them the personalities. So, for example, you know, we're going to be doing regular live streaming straight to Democratic rank and file members, which is something we're not doing now. And what are, who are we going to give them? We're going to give them Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and all these engaging personalities. We're going to give them Cedric Richmond. We're going to give them Barbara Lee. And we're going to give them those people that they watch on the TV shows and love and want to hear about. But we're not only going to give them those guys. We're going to give them the union president at the local in Indiana who stood up to Donald Trump. I mean, we're going to give them that city council member who introduced that fight for 15 bill, you know, and have them, you know, go on for a good half an hour about how it's critical that the cities get some credit for maintaining the democratic banner in this time that we live in. We're going to get people to talk about women. You know, here we live in the age of Trump. You know, this guy, the most misogynistic candidate, beats the first woman candidate. This is a, uh, this is devastating to, to women in this country and men too, but we're going to feature them in these live podcasts and talk about equal pay, access to reproductive care. Talk about how the economic fortunes of a family are directly connected to reproductive access. Hyde Amendment. We're going to talk about this kind of stuff. So we will give them the personalities. But you know what? It's not all personality. I mean, let's, we have to face the fact that the Republicans have out-organized us. They simply have. And I know it's true because I got a good friend of mine who was a Republican, now a Democrat, She's a city council member in Northfield, Minnesota. And she will say, man, when I was a Republican and I was a city council member, they connected me. I was part of this. I was part of that. I got, was on calls. I got data. I got talking points. But now that I'm a Democratic city council member, I feel better about my soul because this is what I believe in. But you guys, uh, you guys don't, don't stay that closely in touch with us. And my thought is that's a challenge. You know, we've got to match them organizationally, and then we put some of these dynamic personalities in front of people, and people will begin to think, oh, when they think Democrat, they're thinking Franklin Roosevelt, they're thinking they're thinking uh, Hubert H. Humphrey, they're thinking Barack Obama, who has 57% approval rating. You know, that's the thing. We've got to, we've got to, we don't, I don't think we feature our people well enough. You know, at the DNC, 
they don't really have a local radio program so that we're constantly getting our personalities on local radio. We should be doing that. I mean, as people are listening to hate radio, we're retreating from it. We should be going into it. So I think we, we, we do have to step up organizationally, but we also have to help people understand that the Democrats are those people who get you out of your seat and you love to listen to. I mean, that's the reality. I was really excited that Randy Weingarten the other day, head of AFT, gives a major presentation on the problems with Betsy DeVos. Now, this is the kind of stuff we got to do much, much more. People will like it. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Let me ask about, you, you mentioned there talking points and organizing and, and getting people on more radio shows. That's the communication side of it. Something yep. that has happened on the Republican side down ballot in, in states yep. and in cities has been the creation of a much more aggressive substantive agenda for state mm-hmm. legislators, for for local city council men and women. People hear about groups like ALEC, but there's a lot of it. The network of what to do if you suddenly have power in a state and you're a Republican is much more aggressive. It's much more fully formed, whereas in the, you do have states where, where Democrats have a lot of power, California being a great one, but you don't see an aggressive, almost carbon copy agenda emergent there. Is that something that you think is a strength or weakness of Democrats? Is it something that, you know, it's good that Democrats are not sitting around, like moving legislation from one state to another? Or do Democratic states need to have resources and and a network that makes it much clearer what they are going to do if you elect them? I have no doubt that it's a weakness. I have no doubt that it's a weakness. But but what but what is the, what is the root of that weakness? We're highly siloed, man. We are highly siloed. One of the things we have got to do is to create a truly national coordinated campaign committee. Now, I'm not saying that U.S. House people are going to tell the U.S. Senate what to do or the Democratic municipal office holders are going to tell the state legislators what to do. But we have got to have some sort of working coordination. So, for example, you just take look at voting rights, for example. The Republicans are so coordinated that the day after Shelby County gets struck by the Supreme Court, which is also part of their coordination, their legislative arm, because it's clearly one body, shoots out proposed legislation on everything from getting rid of uh, early voting to pushing a photo ID to saying that 17-year-olds can't register even if they're going to be 18 by the election. I mean, they, they've done this all over the country and in such an amazingly coordinated fashion. I do not believe that Democrats have identified the fact that voter expansion has to be a strategic goal of ours, and yet Republicans clearly are aware that voter suppression must be a strategic goal of theirs. And so they're actively suppressing the vote. They're doing it in 50 states. They're doing it with a PR program. They're doing it with a state legislative program. They're doing it with a city program. 
just simply not enough uh, voting machines. And they're doing it with a legal program. But what are we doing? We're doing it state by state. Oregon's doing great work, but what about others? There should be 50 pieces of legislation introduced in all states that expand the vote. And that's that's clearly what we need to be doing. The DNC has to help do that. Now, there's some good groups out there like State Innovation Exchange, led by a guy named Nick Rathod, very awesome guy. But, you know, it's under-resourced, and they, they just don't have the tools that they need. It goes back to the fact that we're highly siloed. We don't team up. And because of it, you know, they take advantage of, of our weaknesses. So what if we just got every so-called safe seat Democrat? And we got every senator that is up. And we got them all in a room together and said, you guys talk and figure out how that safe seat Democrat, just by increasing turnout in their own district, can help you win statewide. Those conversations haven't been happening. Who's going to help coordinate that conversation? Well, I think the, D- the DNC should be part of that. So one of the things that will be true if you take over the Democratic c- Committee is you're going to be in leadership of a party that is trying to work its way through some pretty deep fissures right now. One is the just Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton fissure from the primary, which has not, I think, by any means healed. But I think a little bit beneath that particular cleavage is an argument that you've begun hearing play out in more and more explicit terms about whether Democrats in the modern era focus too much on what some people call identity politics. Right. And you, you actually heard a version of this from the other side yesterday. So so we're talking a day after Senator Jeff Sessions began his confirmation hearings. And, and there was a, a, a very telling moment where he and Lindsey Graham were sympathizing with each other about how painful it is to be called racist, how painful it is to be a Southern white man who who is called a racist. And, you know, a lot of folks in the Democratic Party erupted over that and said, yeah, well, you know, what's painful is racism. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but behind that is a, a fight going on right now that, that you do hear brought up a lot in which people feel Democrats and liberals have become too focused on calling out acts of racism, have become too unempathetic around these issues, and have become too split around giving one thing to each of the different groups that, that are in it, as opposed to having a, a more singular message around, say, economic policy. There was a version of that argument that played out between Clinton and, and Sanders, but now it's gotten a lot more bitter. And I'm curious how you navigate it. Well, I think that the DNC needs to point out repeatedly that if we don't have social inclusion, we won't have economic inclusion either. So, for example, the way that so much suppression of wages and pay and economic outcomes occurs is that you don't have the coalition to fight it off. Ronald Reagan, right before his election in 1980, goes to Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman were murdered and buried in an earthen dam, and gives a speech on states' rights. Now, everybody in America who's cracked their history book knows exactly what he's doing. He's dog-whistling racism. He's telling white Southern men that uh, he's on their side against their black neighbors, right? That's what he's doing. Well, as soon as Reagan gets in, one of the first things he does is he is he fires Pactol, and that helps begin the the flattening of the American wage. For working people. So that's, and there are many examples where politicians sow division between people, and then when they get in power, they suppress the wages of all people who, who labor every day to make a living. And that is a recurring thing. So we, we've got to help people understand that, for example, when we were maybe at our best, Walter Ruther and Martin Luther King were on that stage together in 1963. Walter Ruther and Martin Luther King together with the march on Washington was the march for jobs and civil rights, not just one or the other, but also both. And and when we're at our best, you know, we are that rainbow coalition. And we recognize that whether you are gay or transgender or whether you you, you've got to earn a living, whether you're a white male in Tennessee, you've got to earn a living. And and that's a reality for all of us. Let me push you on this a little bit, because. That is the answer people hear. And then what they think is, but it feels zero sum to me. 
it feels that immigrants coming over the border are taking my jobs. Right. It feels, and, and it's not always, by the way, cross-racial. One of my colleagues, Sarah Cliff, she went out to Kentucky and she heard, she was talking to people who voted for Donald Trump, but were on Obamacare. Right. And one of the things they said is, I'm pissed off about the folks who are poorer than me who don't work and who get Medicaid and they don't have these high deductibles that I have. They don't have all these, right. all this cost sharing that I have. So one, one of the things that Donald Trump, I think, spoke to with great effectiveness is the feeling people have that the pie is only so big, which there are times when it is, for instance, with government programs oftentimes, and that what maybe could go to them or could go to their community or could go to their family is instead going to someone else. And so what Trump did for, I think, a, a lot of white Americans is he came and said, I'm going to make sure it goes to you. I'm going right. to make sure these people aren't coming over and taking it from you. But when, when you say you need social inclusion, I think what a lot of people hear is we're going to bring in all these folks and that pie, those slices of the pie are going to get a lot smaller. But see, that's why we got to be in, in people's doorways and in people's VFW halls and we got to be talking to them. Because I would say that you show me a Southern, a white person in Kentucky who voted for Trump and is now worrying about their Obamacare getting taken away. And I'll show you a person who Democrats haven't even darkened their door in years. I'll show you some people who, who haven't been talked to. They haven't heard the other side of the story. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if they frame resource allocation as a basic scare, issue of scarcity, we're going to lose that one because they've already got us halfway there. There's not enough. Obviously, you're going to pick you and your family over somebody you don't know and have heard a lot of bad things about. But here's the reality of it. There is enough in America, man. There is enough. Now, if there's not enough, if, you know, we uh, give the richest people the lowest tax rates, like the hedge fund managers, there's not enough if we let some people hoard massive amounts of wealth overseas because of the deferral provision in our tax code. There's not enough then if, we, if you get a tax break for your plane and your jet and all that. Yeah, you know, there may not be enough then, but if we had... Even a tax code like the one we had in 1975, we could make sure that the rich get to keep their money, and that, but everybody else can make it too. This idea, once they got you in the scarcity frame, they kind of got you over a barrel. It's easy then to work racial, ethnic, gender, age, division. But... No, what if we did have a tiny sales tax on stock trades, derivatives, and bonds like we used to in the, before mid-1960s, like so many other countries around the world do? What if we put it all into higher ed? I mean, that's my point. What if we just ended deferral? Make them folks pay taxes on that money. But see, those conversations got to be had because those, those folks in Kentucky are smart. But they can't know what they've never been exposed to, and they can't be exposed to the idea if we've never brought it to them. That's my argument. We got to go to the people, we got to talk to the people, and you can't expect an overnight flip. But you you will get you will get the change you're looking for if you stick and you stay and you gain people's trust. And that's why we got to have a Democratic Party that is 50 states, that is 365 days a year, that is focused on building out at the county level and the state level, and that moves resources from D.C. to the locations closest to the actual voter. What? And then we got to reorient our thinking around turnout as opposed to just getting a higher percentage in the election than our opponent. So that we, we do have to do some soul searching, but it is what's in our grasp to do. One of the things that I think about when I hear you say all that is during the general election, Hillary Clinton had, I, I might get the exact number wrong here, but it's something like 44 policies. And as somebody who read a bunch of those policies, I can tell you those policies had sub-policies and the sub-policies had sub-policies. And, and a lot of the things that you're, you're talking about here, they were even in there. 
On the other hand, Donald Trump sometimes made fun of him. He had seven, at least for a long period of time. And right. two of them were repeated, like an immigration policy. And he was like another one was building the wall. Yeah, and that's the so same that, thing. Yeah. Oh, man, you know, like this is absurd. But then you you rethink it and you say, oh, he only had seven. So where a lot of people, I think, didn't quite know what Hillary Clinton stood for. They knew she was a Democrat. They have associations with Democrats. But it was such a blizzard of ideas that there was no one thing. People knew Donald Trump, he wanted to build the wall, wanted to cut taxes, wanted to screw with China. Like that's what he was going to do. And so I guess I'd ask you that when you when you think about defining the Democratic Party to people, when you think about being in that doorway and you only got a couple couple seconds, really, a couple minutes at most, what are the three ideas that you want to define the Democratic Party? The Democratic Party is for economic inclusion. Your family ought to make a living, too. The, family, the Democratic Party is for everybody being respected, liberty and justice for all. I just got two. Sorry, I, wanna, I actually want to push that harder, though, because one thing that I think Trump was smart about was he did not say, I'm just for, he said, make America great again. But when he said yeah. build the wall, build the wall is tangible. That thing's a it's a wall. <laughs> Whether or not we build it, we'll see, but it's a wall. So yeah, you can visualize it. You can visualize it. So, call it so, a great wall so those are values. Give me, give me the policies. What are you saying will be done? We're going to raise your wages. We're going to have a fair, fair trade model. We're going to make it so you cannot be discriminated against based on who you are. We're going to get rid of mass incarceration. We're going to invest in, in, in our infrastructure as a country, really. Not how he says. Those things are simple. And guess what? There was a candidate who talked in simple language and got a lot of support in the last election. Are you talking here about Bernie Sanders? Yeah. So tell me a bit about how you read the aftermath of the Sanders campaign and how you think about the fight within the party around Bernie Sanders and what he represented and what he didn't represent. Because he did get, he did, as you say, get a lot of support, but he didn't win the, he didn't win the primary. But there's a real feeling on behalf of his backers that he clearly would have won the general election. How well, you, I, I'm one of those who says, I don't know, right? And I think Hillary Clinton was a great candidate. And I think Hillary Clinton, I'm very proud of her candidacy. Um, but, but I will say this. Uh, speaking in a few clear points and then repeating those points is good campaigning. That's no, there's no doubt about that. You know, and there's a lot of reasons uh, why Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, didn't, didn't win. In fact, she got more votes than the other side, but if you want to talk about in the Midwest where Michigan, Wisconsin, so forth, you know, I, I think that she was in put in a very difficult position because of the president's advocacy of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was just hard for her to get people to believe her on trade, even though I believed her. I was honored to support her because I believed her. Trump is over here banging on, you know, NAFTA and everything, and she just couldn't couldn't escape that. And then the other thing is that, um, you know, I mean, I just I just want to say I think she was she did run a good campaign. I think she was a good candidate, and I think they've been trying to tarnish her reputation for 25 years from Benghazi and everything else. So. To just say, you know, um, Bernie would have won, I don't know if Bernie would have won, but I can tell you this. There's no doubt that clear messaging is critical to electoral success. People understanding who you are and what you stand for is absolutely fundamental. That's why when people ask me, what does the Democratic Party stand for? Well, it stands for inclusion economically, making sure your family can make a good living, and it stands for respect for all. Those th- are two simple ideas to me. How do you think about the question of sort of ideological tilt in the country? Because one thing that I've thought a bit about is, as people argue that Sanders would have won or done better than Clinton, is that you can look at down ballot and you, you, you can see a lot of different lessons in there. And I think we, we it's so easy for us to to read and care about the presidential lessons that, that people, I think, don't always take that stuff seriously enough. So you have Jason Kander in Missouri, yeah. who ran 15 points, I think it was, ahead of Hillary Clinton, but was a, a more conservative candidate. You had yeah. Russ Feingold um, in Wisconsin, who's, I think, a real tribune in general of, of progressive politics, ran a little bit, if I'm remembering this correctly, behind uh, Hillary Clinton, actually. And so is are there lessons in the in the election that actually the Democratic Party, if it wants to be more competitive in, in Michigan and more competitive in Pennsylvania, that it needs to worry about moving too far to the left? 
See, I don't think it's a left or right thing. I really don't. I think that if we engage in a real substantive relationship with the voters, a lot of these ideological-ish questions get sorted out on their own. I mean, you want to talk about down ballot. I believe that in Arizona, they passed an increase to the minimum wage. I believe in Arizona, they got rid of Arpaio. And I think in Arizona, Trump still won. So, I mean, those are interesting down-ballot developments, aren't they? I mean, all over the cities, the cities in Texas went blue. Harris County went blue. Dallas County went blue. San Antonio went blue. Austin went blue. They are knocking on the door. In Georgia, they did pretty well. In North Carolina, we won the governorship. Should have won the senatorship. So there, what I would say that where we won, we won because people people really knocked on the door 365 days a year and were unrelenting talking about what the Democratic Party was about. And then the other thing they did is is allowed people the space to say, we're the Georgia Democratic Party, we're the Tennessee Democratic Party, we're the Arizona Democratic Party. They allowed for local differentiation, which I think is just fine. Uh, we don't need to have a cookie cut out. You know, we want people to, as long as they're Democrats, we don't care if they localize the flavor, you know, as long as the core ideas are still there. So personally, I think that there's a lot that good had, good and happened down ballot. I mean, in Minnesota, in a wave year, we maintained, we still went blue for, for Clinton, and that's top of the ballot. So I think that there are, if you get beneath the surface, there are some important uh, lessons to be learned. That lesson, in my opinion, is we got to reemphasize field. Uh, we don't need to get rid of television, but we need to reconceive of how we do it. And we need to campaign 365 days a year. We've got to integrate all of our assets so that we're not so highly siloed. That's what I think the lessons are. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let me ask you a question now that I'm going to be totally upfront about this. I actually don't quite know how to ask because I've only begun puzzling through it recently myself. I've been thinking a lot about a tweet Donald Trump sent on New Year's morning, and I'm not going to get it exactly right. But he said, Happy New Year's, particularly to all of my enemies who are so upset that I've won that they don't know what to do with themselves. Before Trump was elected, before this whole election, when it was President Obama and it was Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, we already at that moment would have said, America is is bitterly, deeply divided. We're divided by politics. We are at least talking a lot more recently about our divisions by race, around some of the Black Lives Matter issues. And and this is a, already a powder keg of a time. And, and now you have a president coming in who is modeling a politics of sort of petty viciousness in a way that I haven't actually seen, who, who really is a strategy, wants to keep his opponents in a continuous state of distracted outrage, fights with Meryl Streep. 
and I, I watch and I see, and, and, and we're on these social networks now that I think really incentivize that behavior from us. Myself and all my friends are on Twitter. And I think all of us are worse people there. I think we are all worse people on Twitter than we are in real life. And I worry and I recognize how much this makes me sound like an old man before my time. But I worry the incentives to really make politics a cruel and unempathetic and angry and vengeful place are getting stronger and that that behavior is going to be modeled in a way that's going to make it feel very okay. To use a word people like using now, it's going to be normalized from the top. And I'm wondering if you think about this and if so, oh, yeah. how you think about navigating through it. Well, let me tell you, I, I am worried about this because I know that there have been many times in American history when politics was particularly vitriolic. 1850s come to mind. See my point? I do see your point. But that's not, that doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> right. Well, like things well, went, things you, went pretty but bad. Let me tell you, but let me tell you this. We, we have been in points of American history when, when, when people, when Americans have been at each other pretty bad. It's been actually worse than now. And I think that the real thing is that leaders who keep the core principles of the nation in mind are particularly necessary in moments like this. I don't know if Henry Clay helped history or just delayed history, but he kept the states from having a war. He did it on the backs of some people, uh, African-Americans. But there's been a number of times in American history when we've had bitter conflict, you know, 1930s. You know, thank goodness we had leaders like Roosevelt and even more important than him, people like Francis Perkins. Franklin Roosevelt was bitterly attacked, by the way. Bad. You know, it was nasty. And so I guess what I have to say is that the DNC has to appeal to people's better nature, has to talk to people around things that are actually going to improve their lives. The DNC has to understand that emotion drives choice and that if all we do is spit a bunch of facts at people. That they may not get it, you know, because emotion really does drive choices and fear makes people reflect less. And it also makes them concede to authoritarian leadership more. And so the thing is, we've got to I think that I'm running for DNC chair because I think that this is a moment where real patriots have to consider the best interests of their nation. I mean, I think trying to heal our country is is a, is a duty of, of love, honestly. But let me ask and, you about that, not at the 30,000 foot level. What do you think you shouldn't do? Or what do you think that you need to do? What are, what are going to be the hard decisions that need to be made in this era to heal? Well, I think, so, so how we heal all kind of turns back to figuring out what's ailing us, right? So I think the real cause of the pain that America is in is 40 years of the economy tilting dramatically against working people. And the reason I think that's the problem is because I think what ends up happening is that then people at the top of the economy, like Donald Trump, who want to maintain, you know, privilege in the hierarchy, then appeal to Americans uh, based on division in order to maintain power. So, I think that in some ways, it is the inequality that helps fuel the negativity, right? And so to me, rebuilding the Democratic Party to get us back in the game, to get us winning some elections where we can really stand up for some policies that are more equitable, where we can really experience shared prosperity, will actually lessen some of the the hyperbole and the toxic rhetoric. And that's not a short-term project, though, Ezra. You know, there, there, I don't know if there's a magic wand to wave to get us from where we're at, because we got a president who openly demonstrates contempt for the press. Uh, First Amendment protected institution. Openly says he's going to ban people based on their religion. Oh, the Constitution says that the government can't tell people what their religion is going to be or should be or prefer any religion. I mean, he is he is openly proposing things that strike at our Constitution, that strike at the document that basically holds the country together. 
and therefore the values that hold the country together. So I can't tell you we're going to be fine. I can tell you that people of, of integrity, your country needs you. And that's for both sides of the aisle. And the best, the most important thing I think I could do with the DNC is not contribute to the, to the toxicity, but at the same time, not back down from a fight. You know, so I'm not going to name call like him, and I'm not going to name call his supporters either, except for certain of them, like who are, you know, the openly racist ones, you know, like David Duke and people like that. But, you know, the main body of their supporters don't subscribe to those beliefs. In fact, we're trying to help the main body of his supporters, because if we actually are successful, win back some state legislatures, try to create uh, an environment where there's more prosperity for that's shared across this economy, I think his people will look at our side. I also think our people will look at our side, and I think the country will be better for it. I want to ask you about how you how you think about understanding the folks, so to speak, on the other side. Who do you make a point of reading regularly whose ideas you don't agree with? Well, you know, I wrote, I read Dick Army's book, Give Us Liberty. I thought that was an interesting book because, you know, he kind of describes the rise of the Tea Party. You know, I also read a book. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I, I, I'm on the plane many hours a week, so I, I get a chance to read on a pretty regular basis. And so I try to read a mixture of people I agree with and people I don't necessarily agree with. Book that I'm I'm reading right now. I don't I don't know if this is uh I don't know if this is a book that uh, is is somebody who I agree with or not. But I can tell you that it's been interesting. I'm I'm reading Terry McAuliffe's book What a Party. He used to be the DNC chair, so I'm I'm reading his biography. Um, so I think that's interesting. There's a book called Strangers in Their Own Land that I just got through re- reading. And it's about, you know, white working class. I read J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, just got through that. Thought that was a great book. What did, what did you take away from Hillbilly Elegy? That there are a whole lot of people who are differentiated primarily by race, but who share the same economic circumstances all over the country. And that there's a general misunderstanding as to why that is and what to do about it. I know J.D. Vance is uh, probably a conservative, but, you know, the book he wrote makes me wonder why, you know, because, you know, Social Security helped keep his family together. If we had a more robust housing policy that could have helped his mom, if we had more mental health resources and chemical health that could have helped his family, he does add in personal responsibility as mm-hmm. a, as a, as an issue. But, I mean, even then, you know, I think that government can help people maintain personal responsibility and help people. So, you know, this was my take on it. An argument you, you saw in his book, I've, I've also read and thought it was interesting, was that you could hear that he had frustration with the decisions people made. And, you know, he talked about working at, it wasn't a factory, it was a, a I forget where he worked, but he talked about having a job and, and seeing that this reasonably well-paid job is a pretty straightforward job and seeing his, his coworkers just not show up. And yeah, that was a, a huge glass turnover rate. Yeah, it was a glass installation job. And you know, one thing I think to this question of why he is a conservative is that I think that part of his view is that you shouldn't be able to do that. That that you shouldn't be rewarded for that. That there shouldn't be something that catches you too much if you just refuse to take the glass plating job. What did you think of that argument? I thought he was using a individual to try to make an argument for society. Honestly, I think most people do go to work. I think most people do work hard. And, of course, you got people who are irresponsible and don't take the opportunities that are given them. But is that most people? Absolutely not. So, for example, you know, in Florida, you know, I think that the governor said he was going to drug test everybody who welfare, right? And he, his wife apparently owned the company that, did the, that offered the testing kits for these drug tests. And then after thousands and thousands and thousands of people were tested, they came up with three people who tested positive. Three. One, two, three. Not even a full handful of fingers. You'll spend more money looking for welfare fraud than you will find in money of welfare fraud. It's sort of just there's myths in our society, and we're ready to believe them because everybody wants to believe they're more moral, more right, more good than somebody else. But what we have to do 
is say, you know what, people really are good. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's I mean, Republicans start out with saying people are bad. And when people do bad things, that's just them being how they are. Do you think Republicans see it that way or is that like if you ask Paul Ryan, do you think Paul Ryan would say he thinks people are, are fundamentally bad? I don't know if Paul Ryan would say that or not. I could tell you um, Paul Ryan is a very mannerable person and, uh, you know, interpersonally uh, is respectful to people who he encounters, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. But what is his core? But I mean, he says that he believes, you know, the writings of Ayn, Ayn Rand. Well, what does she believe? She believes in that you got to look out for yourself and that charity is for suckers and that, uh, you know, the highest good is to please yourself. So if he really believes what he says he believes, I would say, yeah. But if I asked him, I may not put it that way. So I'll end on the question that, that we tend to end this podcast on. And, and again, I thank you for your time today. It's been it's been great to talk with you. I ask you about books from people you don't agree with, but just what are your three favorite books? What? Oh, you know, that's, that's, that's a good question, you know, because like I said, it's like my hobby, you know. Um, you know, I think the book that probably um, impacted me the most is a book that I read years and years and years ago. It's called Man, Child, and the Promised Land by Claude Brown. Um, so that's probably, I don't know if it's my favorite book, but it was one of the most impactful on me. Uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, I think is just fundamental, irreplaceable. Everybody should read it. I think it's one of the great American letters. And then, you know, um, I really love this book, The Warmth of Other Sons. I've read it many times, and it's about uh, uh, probably one of the world's great internal migrations. And, you know, talks about how people, you know, who had a lot of problems in the South being black and their segregation, did everything they could to try to improve the quality of their lives by moving north, by moving west, and kind of outline their struggles. You asked me for three. I mean, I could keep going, man. I mean, reading for the great, great joys of living. So you let me know. How many more do you want me to talk about? <laughs> well, as many more as you'd like. I, I'm, why don't you give us one more and then I'll let you go because I do know that I do know that you're, you're pressed on time. Well, there's one book that I would really, really, really recommend that everybody get their hands on, and that's Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted. This is an important book about housing and the rental crisis we're in, which makes it particularly disturbing that Donald Trump has nominated Ben Carson to be head of HUD. I mean, if ever we needed an awesome HUD secretary, it's right now. And what we got is somebody who doesn't know the first thing. And that's really sad. I mean, one of the points that Matthew makes in the book, Evicted, he said, look, rent eats first. Rent eats before diapers. Rent eats before food. What gets paid first is rent because people got to have somewhere to live. And if and so the rent gets paid first. And I think even if you're conservative or if you're progressive or no matter who you are, if we really try to attack poverty by going housing first, we could do tremendous good in improving the lives of a whole lot of Americans. You know, also there's a book by Frank Luntz. You know, I like reading his stuff. He's an interesting guy. He's written a bunch of books. Um, you know, uh, I can't figure out which one to pick out now, but he's a conservative. I'm not trying to get people to get, borrow his book at the library. I, I'm not trying to get anybody to, you know, buy his book. Borrowed Frank Luntz's book at the library. Um, you know, he's a smart guy, and 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 if you're particularly if you're progressive and you want to understand how conservatives think, good idea to to read him. You know, Hendrick Smith wrote a book years ago about the American dream. It's a pretty lengthy book and it has a lot of statistics in it. But if you want to get a sense of our economy and where it is, um, uh, I think it's. Uh, Important. I mean, we've had dramatic economic slide, and the economy is tilted very, very sharply against working people. Uh, Hedrick Smith's book about the American dream goes into it. Ari Berman wrote a book recently. I can't tell you the name of it. I think it's about the ballot. Give us the ballot. You know, that book is about, you know, if you, if you believe we're if we're a representative of democracy and the vote is essential to what it means to be in America, Ari Berman's book will be. Good reading, and so those are some ones that I've read. I've read, you know, either in the beginning of my adult life 
in his life, or he's, and some that I've read even just more recently. So, and plus I read trash too. I mean, I read all the books that uh, Dan Brown wrote. I've read them all. I like them. I re- I like being there. Kind of fun. This is a great anyway. reading list. I've got I've got a lot to add here. I will really echo you. Matthew Desmond's book Evicted is phenomenal. It's one of the best books I think of the last year. Congressman Keith Elson, thank you so much for being here today. Anytime, Ezra. Talk to you soon. Thank you to Congressman Keith Ellison. Uh, I enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Thank you, as always, to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panelty production, and we'll be back next week.